0: Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and world. Let's get into this week's episode.
1: Welcome. My name is Aaron Monis, and I'm here with my co-host, Blake Dean, and you're listening to new voices of Mutuality Matters, hosted by CBE International. Lucy Pepeot has been principal at WTC, which is Westminster Theological Center, for those who cross the pond, since 2013. She teaches courses in Christian doctrine and in spiritual formation. She holds bachelors both in English and theology, and completed her MA in Systematic Theology at King's College London and her PhD in New Zealand. Lucy's research interests are Christ and the Spirit, Charismatic Theology, Theological Anthropology, Discipleship, First Corinthians, and Women in the Bible. She is part of the Crossnet Anglican Church in Bristol. She is married to Nick Crawley, and they have four sons and four daughters-in-law. And she's the author of several books that you should be aware of, like Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, Fresh Perspectives on Disputed Texts, Women and Worship at Corinth, Unveiling Paul's Women, Making Sense of First Corinthians Eleven Two through Sixteen. And on the way, we get to speak, uh, and, and we get to speak to her today about. Uh, the one that I want to put your attention on, which is the Imago Day, Humanity Made in the Image of God. Um, Lucy, we are very glad to have you here today. Thanks for being here.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: And as our listeners know, we always have to kick it off with a rousing round of watch, read or listen. So Blake Dean, what are you watching or reading or listening to?
0: Okay, there is a new um, record out. I don't know Aaron or Lucy, if you're familiar with it, by John Guerra. He's a um, he's an American musician, but he writes what he calls devotional music. So he would say worship music for um, personal worship throughout the week rather than corporate worship. And it's a new record called Ordinary Ways. And I'm typically ashamedly not a huge fan of the music being produced by christians all the time um but this is like musically excellent devotionally powerful and the intimacy and honesty and fervor with which he um kind of speaks and sings to god is um really really awe-inspiring so i would i would put you on that john Guerra, ordinary ways
1: john Guerra. okay really okay good. i i will i will keep that keep talking that in the bucket. Um. I am actually got one that I'm both is both a watch and a listen. So um, some colleagues were talking about this show on Amazon, Daisy Jones and the Six, oh, yeah. and it's like a like a mockumentary mm-hmm. about like, a, like an old band, kind of Fleetwood Mac style from uh, the late '60s, early '70s. Um, and and while it's, it, it it deals with some some difficult issues, um, I found it very entertaining. It's a limited series, um, but then I went and bought the soundtrack. Um, and I really have been enjoying the soundtrack I've been listening to. It. It's just, it's just very much hits from music from that era. Um, and it's, it's all new music written for the show. Um, so I, I recommend that if you are someone like me, who loves to kind of pull back into those archives, um, for the, for just good old rock and roll music out of the late sixties. Um, so, so there's, there's two for me. Um, and Lucy, what about you? What are you watching or reading or listening to?
2: um well i so I often read theology as a when I'm in my downtime, as it were um but I decided for my last birthday I needed to get some novels and um so I have a little collection now of novels from my kids, and I've started with East of Eden, which i yeah. thought i'd read I, I thought I'd read at school because I was at school in the u s um but I hadn't so uh then I so I'm really excited about that so I've just started East of Eden it's so good it well <laughs> so far it's you know amazing so I'm excited <laughs> about that yeah that's amazing
0: I love it um I that would not have been what I thought you would be reading so that's such a lovely surprise <laughs> I love it I um we were kind of talking before we hit record that I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation. And even in listening to your bio, as Aaron is reading it, I think some of your other works maybe, um, would feel more given for us to talk about mm-hmm. like Paul's women or women in worship. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I, Aaron and I were really excited when we, um, saw that you published this work on the Imago Day and then got our hands on it. Um, because I think, um, a lot of gender theology or conversations around around women, um, theologically, um, find their beginning in the Amago Day, um, mm. and it, that kind of is one of the few shared understandings, or hopefully shared understandings, um, in our interpretation of scripture and the theological mm. tradition. However, um, there is there can be an assumption of what it means or what I think it means versus what someone else thinks it means without a connection to its history. So I wonder, before we get into the particularities of kind of this concept, this theological concept's um, relevance to um, gender theology, I wonder if you could give us, I know this is a huge question, but just a quick introduction to the theological history of the concept of the Imago Dei.
2: Yeah, a quick a quick introduction. Yeah, isn't that you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> a massive doctor,
0: systematically doctrinal um,
1: yes history.
2: So, yeah. it, it actually in a funny way, you can give a a, a little summary of the history of the Imago Day because it falls quite neatly thinking about the Imago Day. Falls actually quite neatly into three categories that um, has developed over history, and it started really the majority of thinking about the Imago Dei fell into what we call a substantialist or noetic idea of that of where the Imago, where the image of God lies in a human being, Mm -hmm. and so very early on in the history of the Church, they privileged or prioritized the soul. The the intangible, so the kind of mental and um, rational capacity of the human being, because that's where they believed the human being had its ability to relate to God that was why. So, so it was partly that, and partly because they had such a great sense of God as other, as transcendent, mm-hmm. and as being disembodied, you know, he was, he really wasn't part of the creation. And so the the bit of us, as it were, that was like God was deemed to be the bit that wasn't physical. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, and so they, Believed it was located there, um, and there's lots of fascinating and interesting ideas around that. Around the idea of that, that sort of kicked off with this: can we see it? Can we it, can we identify it? Can you see it in other people and in yourself? So lots of questions around that. And then um, in recent biblical scholarship, people have um, gone into the Genesis text in much more mm. detail and locating the Genesis texts in their own context as being temple texts and then seeing the creation of the humans in the middle of this temple um, as being as having their vocation as the royal priesthood. And so um, Richard Middleton is, has done a, a lot of work on that and is very well known for that. Um, but lots of other people, lots of people have now kind of explored that theme and it has become, I would say, quite mainstream mainstream of Mm -hmm. you know thinking about um human beings in a vocational sense so you've got the the substantial substantialist vocational um which has all sorts of spin-offs in terms of mission and what we're called to and destiny and uh, etc etc and then there's the relational views which again is equally as rich in terms of what it yields for thinking of either that we are created in God's image because we're created to be in relationship with Him, in covenant with Him, um, or that we we're, we're, we're born relational, you know, because God is relational. So that's another argument that people come sort of bring to bear on the on the idea. And then in recent um years, there's been a shift in thinking. Um, towards the particular I would say of saying what is God's image in you as as a particular person with your own background, your own race, your own sex, your own culture you know so it's kind of flipped from seeing that it as a sort of universal principle in human beings that is sort of slightly transcendent or has the ability to transcend the physical to then coming right down to the nitty-gritty of existence and and all its diversity and messiness. And so it's a really interesting doctrine because it just kind of ranges throughout history, picking up on all sorts of different things that we think about human beings and God. Yeah. And
0: I, I, that's such an interesting segue into kind of this next question and the particularities, maybe particularly for women. Would you say that the Imago Dei is a uh, maybe fundamental or important first principle in talking about women in relationship to the church, home, or world? Or do you because I, I hear that a lot, right? I hear that as like, this is the first place we're beginning, and then it moves from there, yeah. even even if we're kind of speaking imprecisely about yeah. it. Would you say that that, um, that, that makes sense, that that's um, kind of theologically viable? What would you say on that front?
2: I I completely understand why someone, when dealing with the issue, uh, because when we talk about women, I think in a sense we're using shorthand for, (laughs) aren't we, for an awful lot. Indeed. indeed, (laughs) Especially us together, we're talking about Mm -hmm. something which we share of a view that history Mm in a sense, has not been kind to women, you know, and the history of the church has actually been one. The the majority report really is one of exclusion and um, Mm -hmm. of being kept out of uh, positions of leadership, um, authority, all those kind of things, um and so so when we talk about women and we're talking about their relationship to God, their position before God, their calling as women in the kingdom, um their access to ministry, all these things we mean, don't we, all these sort of we' we're, we're pulling in a whole load of different ideas. Yeah. And in order to the- think theologically about all those issues, I think what you're saying is people appeal first to the doctrine right. that men and women are made equally in the image of God. Is that right. correct? Yeah, yeah. So, and and that certainly is can be a good place to start. But with my other. research interesting and things i've done of sort of researching the whole question of women in the church and in the scriptures and um what i've seen is that there are many different places to begin when Mm -hmm. thinking about the question of who women are before god and what they are called to and Interestingly, the the Genesis texts on the image of God are what many people say are, are kind of underdetermined. You know, they're slightly undefined and they leave us really quite frustratingly with a... With the reality that people have interpreted them in opposite ways, through, yeah, yes. you know, throughout history, really, yeah. um, and with the male bias of history, it's often fallen against right. women, um, yeah. and so a retrieved doctrine of Imago Dei from Genesis. Yes, but you also have to do a lot of explaining as you go right. to mm-hmm. say why you're reading Genesis 1 26 and 27 in a particular way, and then why you're reading Genesis 2 in a particular way, where the woman is taken from the creature and the rib and the you know, yeah. is she made for him, and etc. Wow. And then Genesis three sixteen, and the fall, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And you know, yeah. so it's quite a um, a complex theological picture of yeah. male and female in the image of God in Genesis one to three. So you will have to do a lot of theological work there. <laughs> the other place that people start and i think that, that actually there are two other really good starting places one is to look at all the women in the bible mm-hmm. <laughs> and people have are doing that with with just great results i mean so right. lots of interesting books being written have been written over the last 30 40 50 years and just acknowledging that women have to work harder to find themselves in the scriptures but once you do the work there they are you know and and they tell a good story they tell their own good story and then the the other place that where i would definitely go would be jesus's relationships with women Mm. which you know so powerful so if we if we're wanting to, so what I would say, I hope this is kind of making sense, is that yeah. I wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket. Yeah. And the Imago Dei doctrine is actually, it, it, it's it sort of, well, it's always evolving. That's mm-hmm. what I saw as I researched for this book, yeah. you know, It's always in motion. And so it it can serve us very well in many ways, us being right. women or people who want to um, to paint a picture of God's value, dignity, honor of all humanity, mm. and I believe that's what it should do. But really, tragically, through history, it has been read in ways that have. Yeah. privileged some over others and right. um which is you know clearly an aberration of the doctrine but that's right. how that's happened and we all know that you know scripture is it, it can be misused in that way with um with some uh startling ease I would say
1: yeah. right yeah uh, that's uh sorry Blake. i I know you've got a thought like right on the tongue there because and i think we're both there because we we've been delighted to read your book and uh i i I think that's such a great segue but i i have to pause us for a commercial break really quick uh, so that listeners please enjoy uh hearing about these great opportunities from our uh hosts at cbe international
0: cbe international presents women in scripture and mission Phoebe carried Paul's most important work to Rome, the letter to the Romans. Letter carriers were responsible for reading and explaining the letters they carried to the receiving audience. Paul entrusted Phoebe to this important work, noting both her leadership as a deacon and her financial support of the church. Learn more at RadioWomen.org.
1: And we're back with Lucy Pepiat, um, who Beautifully walked us through just how, in some ways, we take this doctrine for granted um, with the Imago Dei, and how we might think about it and think about the topic of women and gender theology um, as a as a way to maybe maybe not put all of our eggs in that basket, as you so beautifully said. Um, and and I I love that because I. I was thinking about a group of students I was recently talking with uh, this semester. And we were talking about issues of justice and equity. And the Imago Dei was, was very much a place where they, they just were like, yeah, well, of course, like, value to everyone. And, and mm-hmm. uh, for for some of our friends and listeners who are in churches where the messiness and the historicity of this doctrine Hmm. complicates things. And and, and they're addressing these with their leaders. Um, I think this is really helpful because I feel like some of them weighed into this thinking it's going to be a very simple conversation (laughs) and then find it to be particularly messy. Um, Blake, would you have something to add to that?
0: No, that's exactly what I would say.
1: Oh, there we go. We're yeah. just sharing your brain. That's great. Um, to that to that effect, um, one of the things that our listeners come across quite a bit is a uh, doctrine of the eternal subordination of the Son, and mm-hmm. we really appreciate in your in your book that you write that the doctrine of the Imago Dei corresponds to both to what we believe to be true of God and what we believe to be true mm-hmm. humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're wondering if you could speak a bit to how the Imago Dei can also reveal misguided assumptions about the Godhead mm-hmm. and its analogies to humanities, like like this one in particular, and mm-hmm. how that influences a theological understanding of the role, quote, and I'm using air quotes here, the role of women in particular.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's a bit of, it's a slightly convoluted picture So it has its origins, Uh, as you said, um, Erin. The whole there's a propensity in humanity to make God in our own image. Obviously, Mm. you know, this is what we do. We're very good at it, and um, and it's something that I'm sure we're all uh, prone to or vulnerable to. So I don't necessarily at all push this onto people I disagree with. But it's just something that does happen, and one of the so one of the interesting things, um, debates in the image of God doctrine is whether human beings are made in the image of Christ alone or whether human beings somehow bear the image of the Trinity, and that so that obviously is a very complex doctrinal discussion and i'm not going to go into that in that is in my book and i do discuss that and yes. i think it's really interesting so yeah. it are we in the image of christ because he is the firstborn of overall creation and he is the only one of the trinity who becomes human and um so we are then in his image
0: mm-hmm.
2: um or and and ancient thinkers fell on both sides of this argument actually and people still do today um, that knows somehow we must be able to say that something of the whole trinity father son and holy spirit is imaged in individual human beings and the whole of humanity and the church um now so if um and then sort of Off the back of that, there have been multiple questions about how we understand God as triune. Mm -hmm. So how do we understand that God is one and three at the same time? And one of the ways, one of the sort of modern drifts has been uh, towards thinking about the threeness of God in a more concrete sense of three in relation. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly called social Trinitarianism, mm-hmm. uh, in, in when it's sort of in its more extreme form of the that God is made up of three persons in relation, rather than God is God as his one essence, um, who is also three. So right so so the the sort of so, the more the heavier emphasis on the social of the trinity the three persons who relate to one another almost as if they're three sent different centers of consciousness has become a kind of modern phenomenon mm-hmm. um ancient thinkers didn't think in that way they mm-hmm. would have really understood the three as um distinct persons who express the one essence of god and who are related as you know you can't be a father unless you have a son you can't be a son unless you have a father and then the holy spirit is the love between them anyway so but so what we see what we've seen happen with so it's really social trinitarianism the imago dei and gender relations this is why i said it's quite convoluted (laughs) (laughs) You need all the you need these three components to get people to a point where they said um, the father and the son relate in a hierarchical relationship because that was they took that as a given that fathers mm-hmm. and sons are in some kind of um fixed hierarchical relationship which would have been very much um very much denied. I mean, vehemently denied by the early church fathers. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was then accepted as a kind of given. And then once that move had been made within a kind of social trinitarian context, um, then there was. Then they they took the idea of male and female as being in a hierarchical relationship where Mm -hmm. the woman would play a submissive role and the male would have an authoritative role and mapped back onto that the male um, as analogous to the father and the female as analogous to the son Um, so it's deeply flawed argumentation um, from the beginning uh, which I I mean I hope that makes sense I don't know But, I, but because, as I said, it's it's slightly twisty and turny, and um, so. But, but the thing is, if you are convinced from the beginning that there is a God-given uh, mandate for women to be in submission to men, and that they there is some kind of God-given hierarchical relationship, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is the key to human flourishing. Right. And then you are told that the Godhead also has this relationship mm-hmm. of, and and therefore isn't it a beautiful pairing between right. the two. Um, but the, so the real, I mean, there are multiple difficulties with it. One is that there isn't a hierarchy in the Trinity because the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are one and all share one mind, one will and one, essence right. and so the idea of hierarchy is um well as i said was always uh, rejected by the early church and even though we have it we have sort of evidence in the in the gospel narratives that the son comes to earth because he's sent as the spirit mm-hmm. is sent by the father it, the 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 early church fathers went out of their way to argue that this language of sending and the language of the son doing what the father does is is all rooted in their oneness and not in any sense of you know i'm telling you what to do which they said would be absolutely absurd in the godhead so yeah. it it so it's a, it, it's really a, a, it's a brilliant um Illustration of people making God in their own image, of taking a, a principle, a human principle right. that they believe to be right, right and then mapping that back onto God, projecting it onto a doctrine of God um, right. to validate their original perspective right. on humanity.
0: With the Imago Dei often as the crux in between or the railroad yeah. between yes. what we understand about humanity going backwards towards what we understand about God's self, mm-hmm. which yeah. is why I think, um, especially for listeners, that's why I'm going to really encourage you to go pick up um, this book, because I think yes. the way that you handle it, both in brevity, but clarity and without um, and with deep nuance, mm-hmm. I think is so, is so helpful um, for lay people mm-hmm. who... Um, th- which number one congratulations on moving through that so quickly and so clearly <laughs> and condensed, but it's such a comp, it's a, such a convoluted um, dialogue and mm-hmm. often only presents um, in certain ways, not in its fullness. And so <laughs> to have for our listeners and for me, for us to have um, kind of a grasp on what's, what's, what's kind of bubbling under the surface of some mm-hmm. of the, um, the hierarchical visions of the Imago mm-hmm. day. um, Knowing its implications, I think is mm-hmm. um, incredibly, incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, i I would be remiss, however, if we didn't take a quick detour to first Corinthians eleven where we've kind of find some sticking points or seemingly find some sticking points um in um in this conversation, this is the passage where Paul seems to insinuate that male is made in the image of God and female the image of man. And, um, you tackle this briefly in your book and you obviously have a whole other work, um, that works, works, um, diligently on this. I wonder if you could give a quick, um, kind of, yeah, just a, an, a sorry, another quick, um, um, another quick note about how, how we are to, um, even begin to think about maybe what Paul's doing in first Corinthians 11 in relationship to the difficulties we've already kind of explored. Yes.
2: I think, uh, what I will do is just, Throw out really a, a, a question because that's the easiest way to be quick in a sense, and mm-hmm. and it was the question that I I found myself confronted with when I was studying one Corinthians eleven two to sixteen in real real detail many years ago, and and looking again at this verse eleven seven that man is made in the image and glory of God and woman sorry man is the image and glory of God and woman is the glory of man of you know the male of the species and um and and then a kind of unpacking of that in the next two verses and then the final flourish that this is why you have to wear a head covering Mm -hmm. and so so I I would really love um the church to be troubled by this, to be a lot more troubled by it than it has been in the last um, few centuries, I think. And what I, I, so so my book, Women in Worship at Corinth, really came out of a, a very, very in-depth um, dive into 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, where I saw multiple, multiple problems both in the text, the theology, the, the outworking of it, the way it had underpinned um, practices in the church. That I then thought that Paul actually overturned in other places mm-hmm. in his in right. his letters. And I think that many people are are deeply troubled by this text, but almost have been disallowed from expressing right. those worries and. Um, And so I open up the Pandora's box and say, you know, let's just come to this text and let it say what it's saying and then react to it and see what we Mm -hmm. think. And I also was really fascinated to do a bit of a reception history on that verse as well, to see that in the early years that people like um, John Chrysostom or Augustine were, were also actually troubled by it and mm-hmm. and did find it difficult that paul seemingly di- seems to slightly distort the genesis account right. so in, that that was where i i went along this long road of exploration of the text and um my my ultimate uh, real sort of desire i think is that people would be honest enough to problematize the text. Right. And then I personally uh, think that it would be fascinating if this was actually a rhetorical, another rhetorical argument in, in the letter of 1 mm-hmm. Corinthians, which, it, and there are many places where Paul engages the thinking of the Corinthians, the Corinthian leaders. And I actually think this is one of them where he's engaging mm. their thinking. And he's using it to form an argument against them for the fact that they're putting women in head coverings. So that, so um, right. if anyone's interested, that's what I do. But I, but yeah. I would really recommend reading Women in Worship at Corinth because although it's a denser academic book, it it does explain why other explanations are problematic. And I right. and I would like people to understand that, or at least be able to be honest about it
1: yeah no, we appreciate you letting us sort of sort of sort of put a put a, a little sidebar in on that because um, one of the things uh, that just just to sort of land the plane for our listeners today who I know have enjoyed listening uh to you uh, in all of this is we want to make sure sweet listeners that you know this resource that is Dr. Lucy Peppiat and her work and her canon of work um covering a lot of issues that you are hearing about in your churches that you are Coming up against in your frustrations, and uh, I, I talk I think about these listeners that I've spoken with, and um, some of the ways that they're they're taking this research and going to their their church leaders and and the people for whom they're hearing this come uh, from the pulpit, and and wanting more more insight, more research, and also wanting a place to be able to take their leader if they if mm-hmm. they detect that maybe the leader themselves doesn't have a really thorough understanding of some of the systematics that they're teaching on to the subordination of women um, so thank you thank you for joining us today and thank you for letting us just sort of highlight you uh, mm-hmm. to our listeners and we do we do want you to go follow her on Twitter um, uh, pick up her books in the CBE bookstore and uh, very very much read uh, the Magganna know Blake and I were both blessed by the book. Um, are there any other ways that our listeners can follow or support you?
2: Well, on, um, on my college's website, we have something called WTC Resource. And it's just a whole load of free resources, different courses and little podcasts and things. Um, so that's available if people just want to dip in there. And um, I think you have to give your email, but there's some things in there people might want to um want to have a look at and we have a blog and we have a podcast at wtc so if people just want to range around our website a bit there's stuff there to look at I'm excited
1: fantastic um well there's so much more we could have we would have loved to have, uh, dove into with you today but thank you so much just for your generosity with helping us uh, understand some very complex uh, but, but very important um, theological uh, topics today. So um, we want to say thank you, and thank you to our listeners for joining. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can hear weekly from our co-hosts and other themes as we develop content on gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. And be sure to follow CBE International on social media. Uh, you should also go to their website for even more content. Subscribe to their blog, magazine, Academic Journal watch videos and listen to audio of past conferences and events and visit their bookstore where you can find a ton of talented authors and subjects that will enrich your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents and leadership and service to the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. And we would like to thank Landon, our support tech and the team at CBE International that makes this podcast possible. I'm Erin Moniz with my co-host Blake Dean and we are Mutuality Batters.
0: Thanks for listening. The opinions expressed in CBE's Mutuality Matters podcast are those of its hosts and guests and do not purport to reflect the opinions or views of CBE International or its members or chapters worldwide. The designations employed in this podcast and the presentation of content therein do not imply the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of CBE concerning the legal status of any country, area, or territory, or of its authorities, or concerning the delimitation of its frontiers.